0: Amen. That text, uh, the song we just sang, is a nice summary of the passage that we're going to begin this morning in in John chapter 14. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 14, uh, our plan will be to look at John 14 through 17 over the next several months here together. This morning we'll begin by looking at verses 1 through 7 and then we'll go on from there. I'm still kind of figuring out the pace at which I want to Go through this section, but this morning, uh, by God's grace, we'll look at the first seven verses of John 14. Would you pray with me uh, one more time before we uh, look at this text together? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this gospel hope that we have. We thank you for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We pray that you would... Help me to communicate these vital truths with clarity and simplicity. I pray that you would be at work by your spirit in our midst, that you would save those who are lost and sanctify your your children, and that you would receive all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you uh, have received a letter like this, maybe at some point uh, in your life. Uh, maybe it was written by a parent. Maybe it was written by a spouse. The letter was part encouragement, part maybe instruction, maybe part comfort. Uh, It was to be read by you after they had passed away. It's a when I'm gone letter. My father-in-law, Howard uh, Harrison... Uh, when he was experiencing the slow decline of cancer, wrote letters to each of his children. And I, ma- I married his youngest, Sue Amy. Maybe you've received maybe a letter like this. Maybe you were to open it later, maybe at a key birthday or milestone, or maybe the next anniversary that would be missed, maybe on a wedding day. If you have ever received a letter like that, it is undoubtedly one of the most precious things that you own. You've probably read it and reread it, revisited it at significant times, cried over it. My dad, uh, who passed away four years ago tomorrow, uh, did not write me a letter. That would be very strange for him to write a letter. But he did have a couple talks with me that felt the same way, right? Where he communicated some, some regret some apology, some, some exhortation, like, Ross, here's some things I want to see change uh, that I think would be good if they, they changed. It wasn't the last thing he said to me, but it, it was the most memorable. I actually don't remember the last thing he said to me, but I remember these conversations in particular. He knew he was dying. I knew it. And so his words had, had a significant weight, whether in person or, or through a letter. In the Bible, we have several examples of this. They're they're farewell speeches, right? So not the last words of an individual, but they're going off the scene. And we have several of these uh, throughout, throughout Scripture. But they're significant every time. Jacob and Moses, Joshua, David, Paul. Maybe you didn't realize it, but Jesus gave a final farewell speech, we could say. A final talk to his disciples before he prayed over them and began his journey to the cross. Jesus, in the Gospels, very clearly knew of his coming death and resurrection. He predicted it. He anticipated it. We know from, in John's Gospel in particular, that he was distressed about it. So in chapter 14, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And this hour is the hour of his death and soon resurrection. Chapter 13, speaking of Judas, he says, I was troubled in or John describes Jesus as I as troubled in his spirit. He's heading to the cross, the agony of the cross, he knows it, we know it. And we expect his disciples to be comforting him, right? Their leader is troubled. He's going to the cross. We, we expect his disciples to maybe be reminding him of things he had said or things he had promised or things he had done. But Jesus, troubled, takes his farewell words to comfort, to comfort his followers. He gives them some instruction regarding when he's when he's gone. He reiterates the command to, to love. He tells them some expectations. They will be hated by the world. He gives them some encouragements, right? He calls them to belief, to abide in his love. He tells them, I'm going to be sending my spirit. But the tone in these chapters, which we see very clearly in 14.1, is one of comfort. Is one of encouragement. Very clearly. So what makes Jesus' farewell words here it's not a letter but a kind of a talk that he had with his disciples found in in john 14 15 and 16 what makes it singular what makes it absolutely unique is jesus didn't stay dead right that's a spin on the farewell talk right the resurrection and the return of jesus are at the heart of the comfort that he offers them so it's it's not about how to live once Jesus is dead. That's not quite right. It's how to live while Jesus is gone. You see the difference? It's how to live while Jesus is gone. So, so we know when I am gone, letters, right? These farewell speeches. But this is actually, if you if kind of think of it this way, it's actually like a I while I am away letter. If you have teens, you've probably net, left a note like this, right? <laughs> while I'm gone... Right? Here's some expectations. This is what you should be getting done. He's giving provision for his absence. He knows that his promises are the preparation that his disciples need, that we need. Laden with promises for his disciples and for us today. And in the first seven verses, I think we'll see three reasons to trust, to trust Jesus. And thus have comfort. Look at at chapter 14, verse 1. Pastor Kevin read it earlier. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He wants his disciples to, to calm their own hearts. To not to not be anxious, to take comfort. And he he gives them reason. So we need to ask, okay, why are they so upset? Let's get some clarity on that. And, And for that, we need to go back into chapter 13. Why are the disciples so upset? Well, Jesus has just said to them, I'm going to be with you just a little bit longer. He's just said to them, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, but in a little while... You will follow me. So they're confused. They're uncertain. They're like, okay, where? What? What's happening here? What does Jesus mean? He's threatening to depart, that we can't come along? We we can't follow the master any longer? Look back at chapter 13, verse 31. When Jesus had gone out, he said, Now is the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter, always the first to talk, it seems, says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, verse 36 of chapter 13, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I'll lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then Jesus gives them comfort in their distress. How are the disciples to remain calm? How are they to not let their hearts be troubled? Which clearly was the case. Well, it's by trusting Jesus. You see there at the end of verse 1. So, lasting comfort comes through trusting Jesus. Trusting who he is, what he's done, what he's said, and what he will do. Jesus is about to go to the cross to redeem them, to purchase their salvation To be a propitiation, to appease the Father's wrath, to win their redemption. To be in a sacrifice, right? Like a lamb to the slaughter. Our sins credited to Christ... Christ's righteousness credited to us, this sweet exchange that Christians have long talked about and celebrated. This is the provision we need, and this is the provision Jesus makes. This is the preparation at the heart of it. Why don't you turn over with me to the end of John's gospel? It's an important verse for you to maybe circle and remember. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Verse 31, often when we're studying a book of the Bible, especially as we start a series, we want to get a, get a feel for the book, for its tone, for its purpose, who it was written to, why it was written. And John really helps us. He puts the cookies on the bottom shelf, if you will. In John 20, verse 31, when he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by le- that by believing you may have life in his name. He wants them to have true and lasting comfort. And that comfort only comes through trusting Jesus. All that he is, all that he's done, all that he promises to do. These disciples are distressed in a way that you and I are just not distressed this morning. Our distress differs in some significant ways their distress isn't ours, but Jesus' words of comfort can be. Let not your hearts be troubled, brothers and sisters. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. Jesus now gives three reasons for this. Reasons for the trust in himself. Again, he's equipping them. He's preparing them. He's giving some final instruction. He's going to be absent this is what they need to know. This is what we need to know. These are some reasons to trust Jesus. We'll look at them along three lines. So first, Jesus is working for your good in his father's house. Jesus is working for your good in his father's house. We'll see this primarily in the first four, first five verses. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms every time i read that i feel like that's not what i want it to say i want it to say mansions that's how i grew up right the king james new king james in my father's house are many mansions why would a newer translation why would the esv maybe you have another translation why would it not mention mansions mansions and rooms are different right i feel that right which will it be well let me give a little explanation because this is a verse that has captured so many christians imagination for so long and so we need to think with clarity an early latin translation called the latin vulgate uses a latin word mansion s so mansion e s right and that word just simply meant an abode a dwelling place, an abiding, something like that. The English word derived from the Latin at the time of the King James translation meant the same thing. That's what mansion used to mean, an abiding, an abode, a dwelling place. Fast forward 500 years, cross an ocean, and our English word doesn't mean what it used to mean, right? You hear mansion and you think some crib somewhere, right? Some, some amazing place, right? It's all decked out. There's probably a moat you're crossing on the way over to the front door. It's one of those fancy doors. Ceilings are extra high, tons of square footage. You're thinking, what a waste, what a waste. Wouldn't that be cool, right? A mansion, right? We know what a mansion is. Means something completely different. Well, the challenge is, as uh, author Mark Ward calls these uh, false friends, right? The English word has changed from the time of the King James. And unless you know which word has changed and how it's changed, the English translation might lead you astray. Jesus was never talking to his disciples in John 14 about many large, impressive houses these mansions, he was talking to them about one large, impressive house. You see it there in verse 2? It's his father's house. In which there's many dwelling places or abodes, or we could say rooms, and we shouldn't think small necessarily, but just places to live. What a picture of heaven, right? So I'm just going to push just a step further. But songs like... I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Well-intentioned, maybe setting our affection in the wrong place. Jesus is not promising less here. He isn't teaching his disciples, man, your dwelling up there is going to be so big. He's teaching his disciples that there is plenty of them. There is room And room aplenty for everyone who will join him in his father's house. There's a place for every sinner and it is prepared in heaven. It makes sense of the rest of the verse, right? So if there is ample room, why would he say... Sorry, if there isn't, why would he have told us that he's going to prepare a place, right? So if there's no vacancy or if the space is limited... Why would he have promised me a place? But Jesus says the the space is not limited. There's vacancies galore. There is room to join in the father's house where there is plenty of space. Jesus doesn't over promise and under deliver. He says, trust me, trust my words, trust my works. Another image that I had, maybe none of you have this, but I've had this as, as, since a small boy. So I was just thinking about this, is that Jesus' resurrection, ascension is going, and he's like framing. Right? He's, he's, he's doing construction work. I don't think that's the image that Jesus tends or intends for us to have. I think the preparation begins... Just in the next few days of Jesus' ministry, it's in the immediate context, right? It's through his death and resurrection. He's preparing, he's securing, we could say, a place for us in his Father's house. Our forever home is with the Father. So preparations have been made. Take comfort. Look down at verse 3, right? The promise is, okay, if I go and I'm about to go and prepare a place, which I most certainly will, of course I'm going to come again for you. Notice the why given in verse three. What's the goal of his returning for his disciples? It says, I will take you to myself. That, that where I am, there you will be also. So the comfort isn't in the mansions. Is the, it's that the, the absence won't be forever. It's not a when I'm gone, but it's a while I am away. I'm coming for you. We will be with him in glory forever, with him in his father's house. So we're right to say heaven is our home. And it is because we will be with our Savior forever. That's the goal, that's the intent. So before he he gives his while I am away speech. He wants them to know it isn't a I'm going to be gone forever. It isn't i I'm going to it, th- this whole section assumes we might say or presupposes or is based on the fact that Jesus's death is not final. He is alive and he is returning and he's working for their good. He will be back for them. His absence is not permanent. His presence will be. Now he'll talk about the spirit in the verses to come. And we'll talk about that in weeks to come. In verse 4, Jesus then assures his disciples that they know the way. Thomas says, hold on. We don't know the way, (laughs) right? What's going on here? Is Jesus' mistake. And look down at verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, verse 5, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus knows that they know the way because they know him. The disciples know Jesus, but they hadn't put it together. They didn't realize that they did know the way. They didn't realize that Jesus is the way to where Jesus is going. So Jesus isn't playing games with them. He's comforting and then clarifying. So Jesus' response in verse 6 is is vital. It's really the heading of this whole section. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus isn't a way to the Father. He isn't simply the Christian path to God, as if there are other paths. Nor are we left to figure it out. Christians believe that God has revealed the way. What a mercy. The way has been revealed. Did you see it there? Look again at verse 6. Listen again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if there is one way to get from point A to, let's call it point B, right? If there is only one way to do that, it isn't arrogant and it isn't rude to tell everyone There's one way. And here's the way. It's not, there's one way, hope you find it. If you climb up the backside of a mountain in Central America, maybe. No, there's one way, and this is the way. Do you see the mercy of God in giving us this revelation so that we might know, so that we may not be lost in our sin? Underneath our passage is the assumption is that we cannot make it on our own, that we are lost. That we are, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need life. We need truth. We need the way. And Jesus, in love and in mercy, says, There's one way. This is it. Of course, if we've been reading our Bibles, we're not surprised by this at all. When Jesus insists, No one comes to the Father except through me, we don't think, how pretentious i mean what is what what in the world we we actually should think oh that's how it's always been right there was a curtain separating every israelite except for the high priest one man once a year from god's place nadab and abihu thought they could offer an offering their own way and he says no There's one way to come to me. It's my way. I've revealed it to you. You will come my way or you will not come at all. Jesus is the way because he is the truth of God. He is the life of God. This is how one author put it. Jesus does not simply blaze a trail commanding others to take the way that he himself takes. He is the way then he says the truth, right? Jesus is the truth. He doesn't just teach the truth, though he does. He is the truth. So he embodies, we could say, the supreme, the the culminating revelation of God. Jesus makes God known, John 1, verse 18. Jesus says and does only what the Father tells him to say and do. He is properly called God. He is this self-disclosure, the Word made flesh. So the content of any saving faith, the truth that we must believe in order to be saved, is Jesus. You don't have to discover the truth out there or in here. You don't have to travel far for it. You don't have to learn the hard way or use a process of elimination. The truth has been revealed and the truth is a person. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life, right? He says in chapter 5 that he has life in himself. He is the resurrection and the life, he says in chapter 11. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. We saw this in 1 John chapter 5. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. He's of infinite worth being truly God, and yet he's able to die in our place for our sins being truly man. So eternal life is found in him. It's secured by him. Only by conquering sin and death can Jesus now offer new life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus isn't the truth you're relying on, you aren't relying on the truth. If Jesus isn't your way, the way you're going, you aren't going On the way to eternal life with the Father. All other ways, Jesus makes very clear back in chapter 3, lead to destruction. All other ways in the end will not deliver. Because Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to the Father's house. Thomas Akempis, meditating on verse 6 of John 14, wrote this. It's beautiful. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way there is no going. Without the truth there is no knowing. Without the life there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow. The truth which thou must believe. The life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way. The infallible truth. The never ending life. I am the straightest way. The sovereign truth. True life. Blessed life. Life uncreated. Friends jesus says i am the way the truth and the life and then he insists that no one can come to the father except through him third jesus now gives a further reason to trust him and find comfort in verse seven jesus gives true knowledge of the father verse seven begins if you had if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Seems that Jesus, as we saw earlier, is assuming that they did know him. They just didn't know that they know the way in knowing him. Perhaps it could be better translated, though it's difficult to know. If if you have come to know me, you will know the father also. So... In God's story, the Bible story, the story of redemption, Jesus is the culmination of God's self-revelation, revealing himself to his creatures. True knowledge, then, of God must include knowing Jesus, because Jesus is the pinnacle of this self-revelation. So to say, I know the Father, but I reject Jesus, is to say, I don't know the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. That is the point. And you can't say you know the Father, even based on past revelation, if you're rejecting Jesus. You can't say you know God if you don't respond rightly to his Son. When you get a letter that says, when I'm gone, read this. You treasure it. You reread it. You're reminded that he really has taken care of us. He's given us provision through his promises. What a comfort Jesus's farewell words are. And as you read it, you learn that it's really while I am away. That's the letter, right? You think it's farewell and he said it's I'm coming back for you. I will return for you. That where I am, there you may be also. We will be together forever. I'm preparing a place for those who follow me in my father's house. It will be your eternal home. But I am the only way to God, he says. So friend, are you trusting in Christ alone? There's no other way. It's not Jesus plus. There's no hedging bets like we saw in Hosea. He is the only way. Do you know the lasting comfort in the face of fear, in the face of even death itself, that being found in Jesus can be? Trust in Jesus alone. Maybe for the first time. I I don't even know all of you. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus, if you... Think there's another way. If you have your own way, you're on the path to destruction. There is only one way. And Jesus very mercifully has revealed this to us. He has said very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So turn to him. Trust him. Trust in him as the way, the truth, and the life. And so turn from your own way, any other way. D.A. Carson, in his beautiful commentary on the Gospel of John, ends with a, a poem that he wrote. I'll only quote part of it. It's fairly long. But I think it captures this meditation on the way, the truth, and the life. He says, each other path is dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. The claim to speak the truth, good men applaud. I claim much more. I am the truth of God. Religion's page with empty boasts is rife. But I'm the resurrection and the life. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for those here this morning. Who are trying to go it their own way. Who maybe know of Jesus. Affirm Jesus. But are not trusting in Jesus. Father God I pray that they would look and live. That they would trust in Christ alone. That they would believe in the provision that you've given them. Father God I pray that you would Save sinners here this morning. I pray that they would bow the knee and trust in Christ alone. Father God, thank you that you've given us reason upon reason to trust your son. Thank you that his absence is just so beautifully pictured and his working for our good in preparing a place. And we thank you that the bedrock of that preparation Is secured through the finished work of Christ on the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection on the third day, that we might be forgiven, that we might be justified, that we might be saved. Father, forgive us for the times that we have sought lasting comfort in other things, in other places in lesser promises would you give us a steadfast eye of trust in our savior and then would you help us to to run well to run wisely as we head into jesus's farewell speech help us to know that he has not left us alone but that he remains with his disciples by his spirit help us to adjust our expectations as the world hates us, as we, as we posture ourselves to love one another and yes, even abide in your love for us. Father, help us to know and hear afresh our Savior praying for us. Father God, we, we ask that you would do all this and more. For our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's name.